Good morning. And will you join me with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the time that we can gather together on such a beautiful day and to celebrate not only the arrival of spring, but the arrival of Christ Jesus into our hearts. And it reminds us to look forward to his coming again. As we have had this time to worship you in song and prayer, now we turn our attention to worship you from the word and our careful attention to it. We ask that you would speak to us by the agency of your Holy Spirit and that we might receive these words, that we might listen carefully, that they might feed us and ultimately change us, not to make us better educated Christians, but to make us worshipers of a great God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe the most famous Seinfeld episode was the puffy shirt episode. It came out in uh, September of 93, 30 years ago. So the plot of the puffy shirt is Jerry's having dinner with Kramer and his girlfriend. She's a low talker. He can't understand a word she's saying. And inadvertently, he agrees to wear this puffy shirt. It looks like a pirate shirt on the Today Show. And he does so. He wears the puffy shirt, and he gets terribly embarrassed. In the meantime, George is out to dinner with his parents. And while George is at dinner, he bumps in, into this lady who happens to be an agent for a modeling agency, and she notices George has very lovely hands. And so she asks George if he's ever been a hand model because he has beautiful hands. And George comes to think of it, he, he actually thinks he does have beautiful hands. So the rest of the episode, George is, he gets a manicure done, he gets his hands all done, and he's walking around with oven mitts because he doesn't want to bruise his, his beautiful hands. It, it's odd to me that somebody could be a, a, a professional model of an appendage, particularly hands and feet, which I think are not particularly nice to look at. But as it turns out, you, there's a lot of money to be made in being a hand or foot model. Do you know the average foot model makes $46,000 a year just showing off their feet? But I'm sure it's a lot of work. I mean, there's exfoliating to be done. There's moisturizing. You have to be careful that you don't cross your legs and get varicose veins, or you, know, you don't want to wear high heels and get calluses in the wrong place. So it's a legitimate, tough business to be in. My family is not known for having lovely feet. In fact, in fact my feet and my kids' feet are just gnarly. There was a... <laughs> When my daughter was about eight or 10 years old, our church had this uh, father-child event at the church on a Saturday. I, I, I vividly remember this event because it's still embarrassing me. And I hope Carrie's not listening on the, uh, to the sermon later. But uh, all the kids had to stand barefoot behind this uh, screen or a, or a curtain and so just their feet would show. And each father was supposed to identify their kid based on the feet. And I'm looking over all these feet, and I'm thinking, yeah, none of those are my daughters, you know. And uh, Darren Talley's son happened to be a few uh, kids down from my daughter, Carrie. And I, I looked, everybody else had claimed some feet. And I'm looking at Carrie's feet, and I was thinking, those feet are just too gnarly to be a girl's feet anyway. They're just, they're just nasty looking. And so I picked Darren Talley's son's feet. <laughs> And uh, my daughter's never lit, lit, let me live that down. <laughs> any rate, the subject for today is beautiful feet. And you might not be a foot model or a hand model, even if you have gnarly feet like my family. 
it may be said of you that you have beautiful feet. I'd like to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10, beginning in 14, where we left off. There's a, a tight connection between the passage we're studying now in Romans 10, 14, with where we left off before in Romans um, 10, 9 through 13. And there's a pivotal question that Paul has asked that we need to continue to dwell on as we go on with this text. In verse 9 of chapter 10, um, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Paul goes on to say that salvation is available to everyone. It is available to anyone. It's available to all. Verse 11, no one who trusts in the Lord will be put to shame on that last day, whether he's a Jew, a Gentile, a male or a female, rich or poor, whether you're moral or immoral. If you trust in the Lord, you will be saved. And so we're told everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's uh, 10:13. Now we get to uh, the passage before us beginning in verse 14, and Paul goes on to explain then how a person becomes saved, how a person is enabled to call on the name of the Lord, and it is through the evangelist, through the heralds, the speaker of the Word of God. Now, we kind of take it for granted today because we have uh, abundant access to the Word of God. You, anywhere in the United States, on any given Sunday, you can go and hear the Word of God. We have this close link to the Gospel, and virtually everybody in our country is very familiar with what the Gospel is and what it, it means. And so it seems um, difficult in our mind that Paul is asking this question about how a person gets saved, and it comes through the, the telling of the Word through the evangelist. We are reminded of Jesus' great commission when he says, Go therefore unto all the world and make disciples of, of, of all nations. And there's a maximum urgency to that in Paul's day because, you know, nobody had heard the gospel anywhere. And there's this urgency for, for disciples, heralds, evangelists, preachers to go forth with the message. But the point I want to make today is that the, it's no less urgent now, even though we have this abundant information, because there are billions of people who have never heard the word at all, billions who have never heard the gospel. We have this promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and it prompts the question, how then shall they come to call on him? Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not, not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who were not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, 
All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, in the preceding verse, verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a very wonderful promise, and it is a universal promise that everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the question then is, how do people come to know about him? If anyone who calls on him is, can be saved, how do they get the information from which they can then call on him? How can they know about Jesus unless someone goes to tell them about Jesus? And that's precisely the point that Paul wants to make. So he begins by saying, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless someone is sent? So you see what Paul is doing? He's creating this logical chain, but he begins at the end. The conclusion is calling on the name of Jesus. So he begins at the end point, how does one call on him who he has not believed? Then, of course, his, his reasoning here is, is, is impeccable. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but to call on the Lord, you have to first believe. To believe, you have to first hear. To hear, someone has to proclaim. To proclaim, they have to be sent. God must send the person. But take notice here, Paul's not asking for volunteers. He doesn't say, anyone want to go out and preach the word? Because you, you, you don't volunteer for the position. You have to be called and sent by God. That kind of echoes what Jesus said when, uh, when, he's, when he talks about the people of Israel being helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he calls his disciples together, and he says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. And then what does he ask them to do? Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into the field. He doesn't say, sign up for the job. He says, pray that God would send. And then, of course, right after this, Jesus prays. And then after he prays, he commissions the 12 disciples. He calls them. He commissions them to be his, his herald. So we hear no call for volunteers. What happens, rather, is we are commissioned, we are commanded, we are given an assignment by God to go out and proclaim the good news. Now, those who are the ones who proclaim the good news are there because God sends them. And that's why Paul asks in verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Remember the first ones who are sent were Paul and Barnabas. They were at the church of Antioch. The Holy Spirit led the church to identify these two men and then to send them out, send them out as missionaries. So no one appoints himself to be a missionary, an evangelist, a witness, a disciple, a preacher. These are the ones who are called and commissioned to that job. So God calls, uh, he equips the church. In fact, that really is the role of the church. The church ought to be identifying men and women that, we, that are being used by God, and we are to, to look for their, for their gifts. But it begins by us praying that God would raise up leaders in our midst. And when we pray, we should look for the men and women with those gifts. Then we, we test them. We see how they manifest those gifts. And if they manifest those gifts successfully, we're assessing their, their service to the Lord. Uh, then we are able to endorse and send them out. I don't think the church, especially the, the, the Western church, certainly not the church in America, is doing a very good job of purposely praying for and raising up the next generation of leaders in the church. 
We just somehow expect that to evolve on its own. Verse 15, how shall they preach unless they are sent? The Latin word for send or to send is missia, from which we get, not surprisingly, the word mission, meaning to be sent or missionaries, the one who is sent. We see that all through the pages of the Old Testament, God sends speakers. He sends prophets to the people. And just so, a missionary is one who is sent. But it's not enough to be the one sent. The church has to be the one sending. They have to be involved in that. The church is responsible. And even if you are not called to be sent as a missionary, you are called as a church to support missions. Not everyone is called to go, but we are all called to support missions. And those who aren't called to go are those who are called to send. And let me share some interesting facts with you. They're a little bit dated, but I think you'll get the point. According to this report by the Foreign Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, at the time that they wrote this, they said the world's population was 5.3 billion. Today it's 7.88 billion. Uh, of the 5.3 billion, roughly one-third, 1.7 billion, today it's 2.4 billion, are people who would call themselves Christians. Among the other two-thirds, one billion, or 1.3 billion, have never heard the gospel, and the other two-thirds, 2.3 billion, have heard it but are unconverted. The first group <coughs> includes most of the Western nation, accounts for 62% of the world's wealth. It spends 97% of that on itself. The remaining 3% is divided between secular charities, which get about 1% of the resources, and Christian causes, which get 2%, Christian causes of all kinds. Of that 2%, that's allotted to Christian causes, 99.9% are spent on our own countries to provide for our own churches and our own Christian institutions. Of the remaining 0.1% that's spent on Christian work abroad, 0.09% is spent on those who've already heard the gospel but are unconverted, and only 0.01% on the 1.3 billion persons who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. I don't think we're doing a really good job of sending those who are sent. And I don't want you to think like I'm pleading for money or I'm reaching for your wallet. I'm not. Actually, this church is, does phenomenally well. We do much better than most. I, I'm shooting at the dark here, but I'm guessing probably as a church, we tithe a little bit less than 5% of our income as, as a whole. And as a church, we are giving about 10% of our budget to missions. So we're doing much better than most. But I'm just saying that as Christians in general, we're not doing a very good job of sending. Verse 15, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 7. And Isaiah is predicting the end of the captivity of Babylon. And he's telling them, you should be looking, standing on tiptoes, watching for the messenger, because at the end of the 70 years captivity, the messengers will come running with the good news that the time of captivity is over and how delightful that would be to anticipate the restoration of the land after 70 years of judgment. We see them 
running with the good news. They're running because they're urgent to bring the good news. And those of us who see these runners bringing this good news, we will say how lovely, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But he's got much more in mind than just the, the heralding of the freedom from Babylon because he says in the very same chapter, a few verses later, Isaiah 52, verse 10, he says, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So it's not just the delivery from captivity in Babylon to the Jews. He's actually referring to the good news of salvation that all men everywhere will hear. Now, the evangelist is actually bringing better news of greater deliverance from worse captivity to a grander freedom. It is much greater, much more better news. It's, it's, it's super superior than the announcement of freedom from, from Babylon. Those who, re, who hear the good news, who receive the good news, are those who say that those who brought us the good news are those with beautiful feet. There's a story that came out of West Africa some years ago. It really makes this point. There was a young man who had been converted in this village by the missionary doctor who was there. This young man had elephantitis. It's a, a, a gross deformation, mostly of the extremities, where your, your limbs just blow up to huge proportion. Uh, this young man had a, just a phenomenal transformation of his life, and he just desired to share Christ with everyone he could, and he went to every hut in the village with this uh, bubbling, uh, effervescent news of, of salvation in Christ Jesus. And once he had preached to everybody in the village, he began to go into these outlying villages that were just several miles out from the village that he lived in. He would walk the whole distance to these villages and share the gospel and come home every night. After he had witness to the, all these neighboring villages, he determined that he wanted to take the gospel to this one particular village, which was 10 miles away. It was exceedingly difficult, and he could not walk quickly, and, he, and it was very painful for him to walk. And so one morning early, he, he set out, and he began this 10-mile trip to walk to this neighboring village 10 miles away. He, he got there about noon, and he went all through town sharing Jesus, and he shared until dark, and then he started walking back home on these massive deformed feet. Sometime in the middle of the night, sometime after midnight, the missionary doctor heard this noise on his porch, and he went and opened the door, and here's this young man, his feet bruised and bleeding from taking the good news uh, to this other uh, this other village, and the doctor brings him in, and he's bent down, he's carrying for his wounds and his, his tears are falling. And the, doc, the doctor, missionary doctor said, my heart was so drawn to this man, I kept thinking how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Verse 16. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is being widely proclaimed, and not just in, um, not just among the, not just in Israel among the, the Jews, but the gospel at this time is being widely procla proclaimed among all the Gentile nation. And Paul makes a point here. He says, quite frankly, not everybody who hears this good news, who hears the gospel, embraces the gospel. Not everyone receives it. Not everyone believes it. Uh, in the beginning of uh, 
this very epistle, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, um, Paul says that, that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching as the method of saving the world. Um, no, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Um, we have to, you know, I don't remember, it was a week or two ago, we were talking about the doctrine of election, and we saw that God ordains from eternity past who will be saved, but he ordains not only the ends who will be saved, but he ordains the means, how those who are saved come to saving faith. And the primary means that God uses to bring someone through saving faith is the proclamation of the word, the preaching of the word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word. And we all also talked about in the doctrine of election, it kind of raises a debatable question, and that is, if God's going to save whoever he's going to save, why bother evangelizing at all? I mean, what, why be engaged in it if God's going to do what he does anyway? Isn't there at least something a little bit dishonest about saying that we're offering salvation to all men when, in fact, God doesn't actually intend to save all men? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Um, you're looking here at Paul's word. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And certainly it seems that if whoever calls on the Lord will be saved, it seems as if Paul is offering that anyone can be saved and that the gospel is offered to everyone. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It seems like he's making this universal offer about salvation. And if that's true, if he's now saying that anyone can be saved, why does he tell us before about this idea that only some are saved? That the and we, we talk about that being limited atonement, that, God, that the atonement which Christ provides is not applied to everyone. Well, unlike universalists, universalists believe that either everybody is saved or everybody's not saved. The universalists tend to believe no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe in, ultimately God saves everyone. The fact is that the New Testament does not support this idea. The New Testament does not support the idea that anyone is automatically saved um, for, for any reason at all. It's quite clear that only those who believe in Jesus, who call on the name of the Lord, are those who are saved. So can we at least agree at this point of the discussion that the atonement is not applying to everyone? So we talk about the atonement, what Christ did on the cross, as being sufficient for the, all of the sins of all of the world. It's sufficient that everyone in the world could be saved but it is efficient, it's only applied to those who actually are, because we know not all are saved. In fact, most are not. So the atonement doesn't apply efficiently to everyone. Sufficiently, yes, it's, it's, it's good enough that it could apply to everyone. But the atonement actually only applies for those whom have called upon Jesus, those who call upon his name and believe in him. And how do they come to call on him when, in fact, left to ourselves to do whatever we want to, to exercise our own free will, we will always choose not to follow Jesus. We will always exercise our free will because we think it's in our best interest to worship ourselves and not worship God. Yet, I'm ashamed to admit this. I, you know, when I was in Campus Crusade, I used to go out and try to witness to at least two people every day. 
And I always began with, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You, you guys know that one? Have you used that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Would you tell that to Judas? Judas, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your, uh, well, it's, it's eternity in hell, but it's, God, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's true that God loves everyone when we talk about his love of beneficence. He, he loves everyone in, in the sense that he loves his creation. He loves people. But it's only true that God's love of complacency applies to his special love that he has for those who are his children, for those who call upon his name. So you see there's a difference there. So yes, you can say God loves all humanity. He loves everyone. But he doesn't love us all the same. God is angry with evil and evildoers. But God abhors the wicked. Now, again, I want to remind you that Paul here is describing this chain through which the gospel comes to an in individual enabling us to call on Jesus and how we are saved. There's five parts. There's the sending of the messenger, the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the word through the messenger, the listeners believing the message, and then finally, as he believes the message, he calls upon Jesus. And that's the point at which a person is saved. But the apostle is very aware, aware that the first two or three of those conditions, which are, are humanly done, can happen, and the calling never take place. It, you know, you can, you can have the sending, you can have the preaching, you can have the hearing, but that doesn't mean necessarily that that one is going to believe what he hears. And if he doesn't believe what he hears, he's not going to call on Jesus and be saved. And so the sad reality of the text is, verse 16, not all who hear accept the good news. Not all of the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. And Paul could have just as easily said, you know, <clears throat> I've been taking the gospel throughout the entire Roman world. I have preached to thousands of people. God has, uh, has blessed my ministry. I've done the best I can, the best of my abilities, and God has abundantly blessed my ministry. But I have to tell you, I'd be the first one to admit that most of the time I'm not successful. Most of the people I share with don't come to saving faith. Not everyone that I've spoken to actually becomes a Christian. And when he says... Not all Israelites accept the good news. I Man, that is a masterful understatement, right? Because actually the truth is hardly any of them accepted the good news. Almost no one believed his message of the Israelites. Almost universally they rejected the message and persecuted the messenger, which is what Israel has famously done throughout all the centuries. They reject the message and they persecute the messenger. Paul goes from place to place, and he's rejected, he's persecuted, and he's driven out. But look what he says. Not all will receive the message, but you know what? Some will. Some do. That's why we keep t bringing the message. Remember Jesus is, is actually his first parable that he, that he gave in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? The sower goes out to sow some seed, he casts some seed 
among the, the pathway, and the birds come and eat it up. Some seed falls among the rocky soil. It springs up quickly, but because the soil is shallow, it withers. The third kind, he casts the seed onto the, see, did I get that right? The pathway, the, uh, the thorns, the thorns is the third one. He casts the seed among the thorns. The thorns come and choke out the seeds. And then the fourth one, he casts the seed among fertile soil, and it springs up, bringing a hundredfold, sixty or thirtyfold uh, to the harvest. So the disciples don't get it. It's a parable. And they're going, what? So later, in the same chapter, Jesus explains to them. He says, Those that the seed is the spreading of the gospel, the telling of the story. The, the sower is the one who is the evangelist, the speaker, the preacher, the witness, the missionary. He casts the seed. The first group, the seed falls on the, the path, and they don't understand, is what Jesus says. They don't understand, and Satan comes and takes away the seed from them. The second group, the seed that's cast among the shallow soil, the rocky soil, it springs up. It's, it's the, the people receive the word with great enthusiasm. They love what they hear, but the sun comes and, and they wither because their soil was shallow. And the third kind is the seed that falls among the thorns. And Jesus says, this is a, the concerns, the, the worries, the, the false enticements of the world. And the seed comes up and the, these worldly things choke out the seed. Only one in four of the types of soil actually produce, uh, produce fruit. And they don't, the disciples don't get it at first, but Jesus is telling them, you need to just expect that most of the people you share this with, for one reason or the other, here's three good reasons, are not going to receive the word. They're not going to come to faith. They're going to reject the, me the, the message. They're going to reject the messenger. And, you know, that happened with Jesus, too. Jesus had hundreds of people following him around. And then he says something that they don't like, and almost all of them abandon him. Then at the end, right before the cross, even the 12 abandoned him. They all rejected him. They all forsook him. And that's what the early preachers of the gospel experienced too, which is why Jesus gives them the story and gives us the story. Don't be surprised when most of the people you share this message with aren't going to receive it and aren't going to appreciate it. Did it, it happened to Isaiah. It happens to Jesus. It happens to Paul. And he's saying that's what you will experience too if you'll be serious about spreading the gospel. You're going to come up against this sad reality of unbelief. But not all who accepted not all who heard the news accepted the good news, but some will. Lord, who has believed our message, asks Isaiah. Well, not many. But not many is no one. Not, not many is not no one. I think that's right. Not many is not no one. Yeah. There, the results may have been sparse, but they were real. And... God was pleased through the proclamation of the word, through the testimony of other believers, to save some. And it's not because of anything in them, of course, it's because the power of God in the gospel, not because of the cleverness of our gospel presentation, not because of us manipulating emotions or circumstances to draw people in, 
the power is in the presentation of the Word of God. In the meantime, we need to get on with the task. You're not responsible for the results. Uh, God alone is responsible for that, but you are responsible if, of course, you are one of those who have been commissioned by Christ to carry the gospel into the world, to take that message to others. Uh, you, can, you can bring the Bible to them. If you, don't know how to, if you don't know how to share your faith, you don't know how to present the gospel, then take somebody with you who does know how to share their faith or bring them to some place where they can hear the Word of God preached and, and done so without compromise. But most of all, you can pray for them. Uh, verse 18. <clears throat> but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Jeff Thomas wrote, there are people who have attended a gospel church for years but still are uncommitted to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are children who grow up in Christian families and know what the Bible teaches but do not trust in God. There are students who come each week to the Christian union meetings at university but are still sitting on the fence at the end of their time in college. They all remind me of the Apostle Paul's fellow Israelites, many of whom knew the story of creation, the fall, the promises of God to send a Redeemer, and yet they rejected the Messiah when he came. What's the reason for this unbelief? We live in a church culture which is quickly shrill to answer it's all our fault. We did not speak to them. We did not reach them. We did not speak simply to them. We did not pray for them. We did not live credible Christ-like lives before them. Always the reason for people's unbelief is placed squarely on the shoulder of Christians. It's the fault of the preacher. It's the fault of the congregation. It's the fault of the parents. It's the fault of the fellow students. Paul is addressing this very problem of his fellow countrymen's unbelief. He says it's bleakly like this. Not all Israelites accepted the good news. He had been beaten with rods. He'd been stoned by Israelites for preaching their message, but that was nothing new. So many of the prophets that God had sent to his people had been killed by them. And Paul quotes the greatest writing prophet, Isaiah, saying to God, Lord, who has believed our message? It seemed to him that there was no one hearing his spirit-filled preaching and responding in repentance and faith. Why is that? Had they never heard the message? Is that it? They never heard a clear message? Paul says, verse 18, Paul says, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out to the earth, their, throughout the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What glory of our God is declared in creation? And Paul takes the truth now and and he is saying the voice of grace in the word of God has gone out through all the world. Did they hear? Yes, they heard. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 18 says, I got to ask, did they hear? Yes, they heard. Verse 19, okay, I got to ask, didn't they understand? Yeah, they did understand. In fact, 
one of the proofs that he offers that they understand is that they're jealous of the Gentiles who are coming to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works the way Israel was pursuing it. Yes, they understood. That's why they were jealous about it. You know, the most common obstacle that we'll face to the gospel is not the lack of information. It's not the lack of understanding. It's indifference, not caring. See, if Israel didn't care and didn't understand, they didn't understand, they wouldn't care. But the fact that they did care shows that they, understand, they understood. We run into people when we share the gospel and they hear what we are saying and they understand what we are saying, they just don't care to act on it. And so what do we do? Well, we feel like, oh, well, then we need to jazz up our message a little bit. We need to make it more attractive. We need to be more winsome, more persuasive. We need to do something to change the message so that we can better present the gospel. Maybe we needed a more thorough explanation. Maybe we needed less information. I think what we really needed was better preparation through prayer. Because no one is going to come to saving faith unless first the Holy Spirit pricks their heart and awakens in them a desire for God. You can't do that. You can't persuade them to that. You can't talk them into the, that position. You can't razzle-dazzle someone to believe that. The best part of your missionary effort is going to be prayer. Lord, go before me so that they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they call upon you. Now let's, now let's look back to verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why do we do evangelism? There's two reasons. One, because we are commanded to do evangelism. Because as Christians, we have been commissioned to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And the second reason is, that is the means through which God has chosen to save the world. Through one Christian telling someone else about his hope in Jesus Christ. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. God uses men in the process of saving men. So engaging in evangelism should be done not because we have this sense of obligation and duty, but rather that we see this as the, the incredible privilege that God has granted us to be part of the salvation of other people. Let's be honest, God could save people without us. He could save people without evangelists without witnesses. He could just decide to save people, but God has chosen to include men as the, uh, men and women, people as the primary method through which others are brought to saving faith. What a inspiring privilege uh, to be part of this great majestic program of redemption that God has planned from before the foundations of the earth. Again, no one's going to hear the word unless someone tells them, but no one's going to believe what they've heard without the Lord prompting in their heart a desire to hear. You may be aware that the 
when the Greeks were fighting the Persian, there were three major battles that took place. There was the Battle of the Plain. We know this is the Battle of Marathon that took place in 490 BC. Then there was a great naval battle that took place, the Battle of Salamis, which was 470 BC. And then the last battle was fought in, in uh, four, uh, 490, 480, 479. So 479 was the Battle of Plataea. At any rate, we're, you know the story of the Battle of Marathon because there was this one Greek guy named Phidippides. Phidippides is chosen to be literally the runner. He's, he's at the Battle of Marathon, on the plain of Marathon. The Greeks win, so Phidippides is told to run back to the city of Athens, which happens to be 26 miles away, slightly uphill the whole way. And he runs the whole 26 miles to bring the good news to Athens that the Greeks have won. And that's why we have today marathons that are 26 miles. That's, that's why it was named. At any rate, you can imagine as Phidippides runs into the city, the great rejoicing because he's announcing, we've won, we've won, we've been victorious. And those who hear this gospel, the gospel means the good news, those that hear the gospel of, Greeks, of Greece's victory welcome the herald because he runs with beautiful feet. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. R.C. Sproul says, the person who led me to Christ was the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. No moral, mortal has the ability to bring anyone to faith, yet God worked through a human instrument, a man who told me about Jesus on September 13, 1957. I'm eternally grateful to, the, to that person, not because he had the power to change my heart, but because God enlisted him for the sacred task, and he was faithful to do it. So long as I live, his feet will be beautiful in my eyes. Jeff Thomas wrote, God's will for us is that from us, the voice of Jesus goes into the, all the earth. We are to be engaged in this breathtaking project because the God who is worthy to be known and served for who he is is himself the answer to the world's longings. And we who know him best are best equipped to serve him. He's our message. If we've discovered the glory of God in the face of Christ, we dare not hold back. The God of glory must be made known. Now, we don't all get to go to some foreign mission field. We're not all called to be that. But has it struck you, we are a mission field right here in Port Townsend? And there's this huge population of people who don't know Christ, many of whom have never heard the gospel. This church is the best equipped, the best position to minister to this culture and in this time. What are we doing with it? I still maintain that feet are not attractive. I don't think any of you have beautiful feet. But we have a beautiful message of glad tidings of a Savior. We have a message to other people that they need to hear, that they can call on Him for salvation. And then maybe someone will say of you, like R.C. Sproul says of the one who led him to Christ, you have beautiful feet. Let's pray. To every one of us in this room who has come to faith in you, somebody was used with the message. You sent someone who was faithful to you 
and brought the message. And in all likelihood, we rejected it at first, and we were annoyed by their presentation and their insistence on Christianity. But you used them through their words and then the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to cause us to hear the message, to believe the message, to call on you. God, give us the privilege of doing that for somebody else. Give us the great opportunity of sharing this phenomenal spiritual work of redemption that we share with God the process of leading others to eternal life. May we not shy away from that, nor may we accept it simply as a duty, a burden that's laid upon us. Give us the opportunities and then give us the boldness and then the joy. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.